Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, everybody. This is Benny coming to you from the usual studio in Rehovot, Israel. Dan today is coming at us from Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. How are you doing, Dan? I am doing amazing. And I'm sitting here with our good friend, Mr. Thani Al-Shirawi, who is hosting me in his lovely home. And uh, how are you doing, Thani? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much uh, for giving me this opportunity to uh, give uh, the guys a sneak preview of next week. Okay, next week, I will be the guest. So uh, just a sneak preview. I hope you've enjoyed the, the Dubai so far. This place is unbelievable. First of all, the hospitality and, uh, and meeting new friends. Uh, and Danny was my first friend in the UAE. Thank you. And um, meeting, getting to know the people and the culture. Uh, the city itself is, is just another planet. I say that in the best way. Um, I think it's 20 years in the future here easily. And uh, we always talk about, you know, in Israel, kind of the story is what we can bring here. There's a lot they can teach us. Um, a lot they can teach us about about combining uh, cutting-edge modernity while maintaining tradition. And um, and I think this is going to be an amazing relationship. Next week, we're going to host Danny and a few of our other friends here in the UAE. And uh, we're looking forward to it. In the meantime, I get to enjoy this amazing hospitality. Thank you. The, the most surprising part of all that is that somebody would be would be your friend, Dan. So. <laughs> He's a nice guy. Don't be so harsh on him. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, See you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We'll see, see you next, next week. week, then. Yes. Thank you. So we, before we get into uh, our very wonderful guests today, a uh, qu- couple, couple of quick uh, promotion notes. Today's episode is being co-sponsored uh, by Stand With Us, uh, and I will let our guest explain Stand With Us. Uh, and check this out. So Juan so far has enjoyed tremendous success. We have listeners literally all over the world in every continent except Antarctica. I can attest that there's a growing listenership also in India and in the UAE. So we're growing in leaps and bounds. That being said, uh, we are listener supported. So we want to be able to make sure that we can produce top-notch content for you. Uh, and as such, you can consider helping us continue to expand by becoming a supporter today. Uh, you can make a one-time donation or a small monthly contribution or become a sponsor and advertise your business or organization on our platform. For more information, check us out uh, on our newly revamped website at www.juanced.com. So today we've got a great show for you. We are here with the authors of a wonderful new book called Is Resilience? Uh, Is Resilience What Israelis Can Teach the World? Michael Dixon and Dr. Naomi Baum. Michael Dixon is executive director of Stand With Us Israel and a 2019 winner of the Bonetzion Prize. And in 2020, this year, he was listed on the Global Jewish 100. 
Dr. Naomi Elbaum, PhD, consults and facilitates workshops on resilience building in Israel and worldwide and was director of the Resilience Unit at Metiv, the Israel Psychotrauma Center, for 12 years. Michael, Naomi, how you guys doing? Great. Doing great. So good to be with you. Thank you, Benny. And I'm jealous, Dan, you get to be in Dubai. I'm jealous of myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't wait for, uh, I want to say all the Israelis, but uh, let's say most of the Israelis to come out here. <laughs> I have to say that their, their, their name, the UAE doesn't quite work as well as a portmanteau as, uh, as Israel does in the title of your book is Resilience. Sure. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. Tell us a little bit about uh, about the project, about the book. Uh, and I guess, Naomi, we'll, we'll start with you. Okay. Well, actually, you might say age before beauty if you start with me. But Michael, oh, is, the, Michael is the man behind the book. He really is. Um, he gets full credit for dreaming up this idea. And he brought me on board uh, several years ago to help write the book. And we, in fact, wrote the book very much together. But he gets all the credit for thinking about this great idea. And he also gets all the credit for the title. <laughs> um, of course, I, I get a little credit for the way the cover looks. So, you know, it's kind of a balance here. It's More a than give that. And take. Yeah. So I'm a psychologist by training, and I've spent the last 20 years of my professional career um, working in the field of resilience building um, in Israel and all over the world. As you know, Israel is not only a startup nation, but we are a startup when it comes to trauma care and uh, dealing with trauma and um, understanding resilience and creating programs to help build resilience. The whole world really looks to us when it comes to trauma and resilience. And what we have done in this book is we've interviewed um, 14 different, very interesting people who've encountered lots of adversity in their lives. And what we tried to do is see what were the keys to help them overcome their challenges. That, in a nutshell, is the book. And uh, I would say that I brought the psychological part uh, parts to the book. Um, Michael brought his very good connections to reach people all over Israel and get them to agree to spend two hours, three hours um, talking to us. Um, and it was really an amazing journey. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, uh, first, before we even get into to, uh, to that question, maybe define for, for our listeners um, what is resilience and what is resilience in the Israeli context? Uh, well, I, I would say what we're trying to do is re define resilience not only in the Israeli context, but understanding that in Israel we have been exposed to tremendously high uh, levels of exposure to trauma, the threat of trauma, the threat of destruction, the feeling that our lives are on the line and one more step and we're out there in the ocean. So um, in Israel, um, trauma isn't new to us, 
And, and of course, if you think about Jewish history, I always say that I think we're a nation born in trauma. We have, we're, if you look at the, uh, Parsha Shavu, if you look at this, the portion, the Torah portion of the week that we're coming up to with the binding of Isaac, Akedat Yitzchak. So that is the original trauma. Or maybe this past week when Abraham had to leave his land. So we really have very deep roots in being exposed to trauma. And, um, what we have done, uh, and and our understanding, my understanding of resilience is that most people, most of the time, are resilient. Being resilient doesn't mean that you won't experience traumatic symptoms, post-traumatic symptoms. You won't have uh, just smooth and easy sailing. Absolutely not. You probably will experience anxiety, depression, uh, trouble sleeping, oh, all sorts of terrible things. People sure. will experience all these things and yet they can be resilient. And most people, um, are resilient. And so we looked at what helps people become resilient. We looked at the things that people can do, what they can add into their own lives, what not, you know, there's a huge amount of research of what creates, what, what makes a resilient person. And some of those things are inborn or, you know, luck of the draw, what family you're born into or what's your IQ or how good looking you are. All those things can actually contribute to resilience. But what can we do about those things? We can't do anything about them. So we tried to look at the things that people can do something about. And um, and that is what we wrote about. Terrific. And uh, and Michael, tell us, uh, who, who are you and uh, and how did this idea come to be? And uh and, and maybe a little bit about Stand With Us. Sure. As well. What do you do when you're not writing amazing books, man? <laughs> yeah. So the book, the reason that one of the reasons the book took so long is because of my day job. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was born in the UK. Um, I was blessed to make Aliyah some 15 years ago, almost. Uh, and I live here with my uh, wife and five kids. Uh, I'm executive director of the Israel office of Stand With Us. We have a large visitor center in King David Street, right in the heart of Jerusalem and Stand With Us is a movement. Its uh, aim is to counter anti-Semitism and support Israel around the world. And I know we're going to talk more about that. So I'm more than happy to talk more yeah. about the great work that Stand With Us is doing. And I guess from that, I mean, obviously, you know, every if to work for Stand With Us is to be driven by, inspired by Israel, and I am, and I always have been. And so that kind of flowed into the writing of this book in that I'm inspired by Israelis. And having been here for any period of time, you notice some of the things that Naomi mentioned, which is that Israel faces incredible trauma, incredible adversity on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, Israelis start the day and they don't know how that day is going to end. And so what we see in Israelis is, is this incredible um, ability to bounce back. And that's what I wanted to, to kind of do a deep dive on. And so that was the idea for, of the book. Um, to interview people and understand what are the keys to Israeli resilience. So uh, one of the people I interviewed for the book very early on, actually about six years ago, um, is uh, sitting in front of us now, Dr. Baum. And uh, I met her in Jerusalem at the Israeli uh, Psychotrauma Center. And I thought she was so fascinating, both professionally and personally, by the way. She's a mother of seven. She's a grandmother of 
is twenty one. Twenty one. Twenty one. Twenty when I spoke, and now it's twenty one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she's a cancer survivor. She's an incredible person, uh, and she's written about her experiences. And so I asked her to come on this journey with me, and actually, it made it you know, it took it to another level because we got to meet some outstanding personalities together. We got to really drill down into their lives, what drives them, what helps them bounce back. You know, the term resilience in, in Ivrit Hossein uh, comes from the study of metallurgy, like how tough and resilient metals are, you know, do they bounce back when you bash them? And so, uh, to see that embodied in these amazing Israelis that we met was an incredible thing, an incredible journey. And, you know, one of the people we quote in the book talking about Israelis is Robert De Niro. And he talks about how Israelis are warm and they're nice and they're intelligent. And he says aggressive. And he means all of those things in a positive way. It's not, you know, it's not a negative. It's not a critique. So that kind of toughness that we see in Israelis or as he says, aggressiveness, can be seen as a very positive trait and perhaps indicative of the resilient types that they are. And that really led to the writing of this book, which has been uh, just an amazing journey and amazing pleasure. Incredible, incredible. So you, you said the book, it took some time to write. Uh, how long has this project been in the works? So six years ago was when we began. Um in that time, we have had wars, we have had stabbing intifadas, we have had terror attacks, um, and this little thing called the international pandemic, um, and much more besides, and about 30 elections. Uh, so we've seen a lot going on. You know, guys, you've lived through it. And peace, peace has broken out in the Middle East, and that's why Dan is sitting there in Dubai right now. So, so much has happened. And so that's fed into the experience of writing this book, you know, uh, even as we were editing it, as we were like, you know, facing the final hurdle, there, there, there's some element that the pandemic features in one of the chapters. So there's so it's so rich with what Israelis face. And I guess one of the reasons uh, that it took so long is because of all those different things. And the other reason is that I do, you know, both of us are very busy professionals uh, and it takes a lot of time and we wanted to get it exactly right. And, uh, and, and, you know, all of the things that I mentioned also unfortunately affect Israel's reputation in the world with something that Stand With Us deals with on the day to day and around the clock. And so, uh, we kept having to try and push this project forward to get it over the finish line. And eventually we did. And I'm very pleased that we did. So tell us, uh, Incredible. what kind of stories do you, um, what kind of stories, what kind of characters do we meet in? I'm going to try to pronounce I keep trying, getting it wrong. Is really, is really. Is resilience. Is resilience. Oh, is resilience. about to become a household name. Is resilience. Everyone's going to be saying it. Everyone's going to be describing it. That's the aim that, you know, when people think of Israelis, they're going to think of their is resilience and channel their internal is resilience. Um, Nanny, you want to go first on me? Up to you. By the way, we're all in favor of Portmanteau's here. And, Good. Uh, as long as they channel their is resilience with some juance, we're all for it. I love how you did that. That was an expert professional segue, and your pronunciation of both was just beautiful. Got to perspective. What 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 are, what are some of the characters that we'll meet? In, so in, in, one of the things that Michael and I did when we plotted out this book um, was to try to get a wide variety of people. Um, involved. 
uh, people who had experienced lots of different things. So we have um, uh, a war hero. We have uh, somebody who became paraplegic. We have um, an Ethiopian couple who trekked through the Sudan and uh, lost family members and uh, tell their story. We have a Holocaust survivor. We have Natan Sharansky. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, we have some well-known people and we have some less well-known people. Uh, so it's really a combination, uh, physical, uh, challenges, emotional challenges, uh, losing family members, all, all different kinds of things. We really try to, uh, cover a lot of ground. We didn't cover everything. I'm getting questions now. Actually, I got an email the other day, whether we have any, uh, it have, have we written at all about people with cerebral palsy or autism? And we did not include um, people with intellectual uh, handicaps or uh, challenges or um, we, we, did, we really didn't go in that direction, but it's an interesting thought for our follow-up book. I'm getting all sorts of ideas for our follow-up. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves, Naomi, but I have been asked several times about a sequel and the book is still on pre-release and hasn't been published officially yet. Officially. Is, you know, Naomi's right. We, we wanted a diversity of people and what we try to do in every chapter is as well as tell the personal story of that person to kind of bring a theme to bear as well so that you'll get... So, you know, we're, we're meeting Avigdor Kahalani. You're going to learn about the Yom Kippur War from his personal perspective. You're going to find out what it takes for someone to get back in a tank after he's, you know, suffered, burns the majority of his body. Um, how do you then summon that energy to kind of push yourself forward and in the end become somebody who leads an iconic war in the Valley of Tears? Um, we met Radia Murray, who is the first Druze female member of Knesset, incredibly tough personality, somebody who was berated in the street by uh, somebody in the Druze community because she dared to be a public professional woman uh, who was a TV presenter and then later became a member of Knesset and actually brought public opinion with her uh, in her community and was able to bring everybody around to support her as well. Um, so what in each of the chapters you'll meet uh, somebody, you'll hear their personal story, and you'll at the same time get an understanding of the different themes that surround them, whether that's history, geography, or many other cultural themes as well. We always talk about resilience, uh, Israeli resilience, in the context of terror and war, something that sadly um, we've had to go through um, uh, all too much. So uh, we'd be glad to hear, um, you mentioned Kalani, but if you have kind of an example and take us into one of the characters um, you know, in the terror context, but then something that's not related to terror war that you might take us into. I think I think you mentioned that you had a paraplegic. Was that perhaps Noam Gilshari? So actually we have a paraplegic and we have a quadriplegic in the book, but let's just take one step back because in the 14 chapters that we have with all of our different characters that we met, prior to that, we kind of set out our stall and identify the keys to resilience, what we think the keys are, are to resilience. So, you know, we, we state in the book that the Talmud teaches us that God uh, takes care of three things of uh, childhood, of rain, which childbirth, 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 childbirth uh, which equates to uh, rain, which equates to material sustenance and uh, 
also reincarnation and leaves the rest to us. So we then take our lead from that and take three keys to resilience that we set out at the beginning of the book. And those keys are exemplified by the people that we meet. So one of them is empathy, uh, the ability to emote, not to, uh, not to hold back your feelings, to feel. Um, and I'm sure that Naomi can go into depth into all these different things. The second one is flexibility, your ability to change your direction mid-course. You know, you're heading in one direction and there's an obstacle. How able are you and how quick are you able to then change course? And finally, meaning-making. Um, how do you make meaning from life? And that, if that drives you uh, forward, that's going to help you and propel you and build your resilience as well. So these, these keys to resilience were laid out in all of the different stories that we uh, speak about. Um, to give one example, we met a record-setting Israeli ice climber by the name of Nadav Ben Yehuda. Um, Nadav... Uh, was uh, climbing Mount Everest, which is one of the 14 mountains that are above 8,000 feet. Uh, he was nearing the peak. And he, meters. Meters. 8,000 meters. I apologize. 8,000 meters. Yeah. Um, and as he was nearing the peak, um, you know, Everest is strewn with dead bodies. They're frozen and they're at the top of people who tried to make the climb, didn't make it. And that's the end of that. But he saw something that he thought was a dead body and it turned out to be someone who was still barely but alive. Uh, and he then had to make a split second decision as to whether to reach the summit and continue, um, having put months and years of work into it uh, and preparation, or to try and attempt what may have not been possible, which is to save the life of a climate who turned out to be Turkish uh, and was actually someone who he had met at the bottom of the mountain prior. And so he decided to, in that moment, tie him to himself and bring him down Mount Everest rather than meet his summit. And we tell his story. And it's an incredible story incredible. because um, following that, you know, in further climbs, he's been injured. Uh, and so we learn from him uh, about how to change course. Literally, <laughs> he changed mid-course, but also how to bounce back from, you know, horrific injury. Uh, as you mentioned, we met Noam Gershoni, who's an amazing guy. He literally fell from the sky uh, from an Apache yeah. helicopter accident that killed his his uh, co-pilot, Tom Farkash, uh, and he was presumed dead. Uh, he was uh, brought out from the, uh, from the helicopter by the search and rescue unit of the IDF and uh, brought back to life in the hospital. And he talks us through what, you know, what he went through in his rehabilitation. But then, of course, after that, he uh, became a tennis champion and then took on uh, the 2012 London Olympics, becoming our first ever Israeli gold Paralympic uh, champion. Uh, an incredible story. I mean, even even to the last moment, he landed in London for the Olympics. Okay, get this. Yeah. And he's, you know, he has a special customized wheelchair. It's, it's specialized for his body. And um, I won't mention who the carrier was, but the plane carrier damaged it mid-flight. So when he got to the Olympics, he didn't have his his own wheelchair. There's so many obstacles that he faced right up until the last, and yet he uh, made it through. And we talk about that, and he's an incredible personality. He, he really is an incredible person. I've had in in uh, I've I've brought him to some of my tour groups. Um, Michael, I don't know if we we discussed this in in, in, in you know that I work with with Kenneth mm. Tours and we do educational groups and he's always a really terrific keynote speaker for like the end of a group to kind of tie it all together and he's 
fantastic and phenomenal and his story is so inspirational and he's also just like a really really nice guy yeah he's a funny nice guy and you can see it like you sit in a room with this guy and it's like oh my god if this was me i would have killed myself like even if you survive all this stuff like how do you keep on going like you know you you can't eat right you don't have the use of your legs or anything below your waist and like you, you know your life is over and 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 instead of doing what like most of us would probably do, which is to like give up on ourselves, the guy goes on and wins a gold medal in in in, in tennis, like a sport that he never played before. By the way, like he wasn't a tennis player before yeah. this happened. Yeah, and and um and he loves his country and he loves and he loves everybody and 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 he's and he's a, he's a great guy. So yeah, I, I totally uh you know the message resonates and and it's just such an inspirational thing. And to 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 think that you guys have sat down with so many people that have so you know similar stories of overcoming right. the odds and succeeding right. despite the challenges. Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm thinking of the story of uh Gavi Arconi, um who um we interviewed. Um he lost two feet two legs above yeah. Two legs um, in the last few minutes of Tsuketan. Mamash, it was like really, it was after the ceasefire practically. And the two people standing next to him were killed. And he went on to, he basically continued his life and ran for uh, head of the uh, Moatza, uh, the Moatza is the regional council. And, uh, you know, picked up the pieces of his life. He, he still to this day has a tremendous amount of pain. Actually, he suffers a lot of pain, but he, he muscles through it. Very interesting. Um, one of the interesting things about uh, this book was how uh, happy people seem to be to take the time and reflect on their stories. They were like appreciative of that. We were so appreciative of the time that they gave to us, but uh, we felt, I think, with just about each and every interview, that for the people being interviewed, it was it was a gift, sort of, to sit back, to reflect on their lives, think about their challenges, think about what helped them and who helped them um, overcome. Really putting the emphasis on resilience. So I could say that Gadi Arconi acknowledged having pain, but the interview wasn't about his pain. The interview was about what where his drive comes from, what helps him overcome. Um, and uh, the other thing I, I wanted to, to mention is that Michael keeps talking about bouncing back. And I think we have to uh, remember very often that people are actually bouncing forward because they're not returning to their lives exactly where they left them off. Um, they are coming back into their lives, but very often with some added value, new perspective, uh, certainly all the challenges that they've had, but, but they're in a different place. And, um, there was a, a term coined by, um, a family therapist many years ago, at least 20 years ago. Uh, her name is Frimit Walsh. I never met her, don't know her, but she's Mm -hmm. the one who coined that phrase. And I think it's a very apt phrase of bouncing forward. So Mm -hmm. you're bouncing forward with really added value of the wisdom that you've gained and the perspective that you've gained. I'm curious. um, You mentioned empathy. You mentioned flexibility. And what was it? Remind me of the third one. Meaning making. Meaning making. 
I I would have expected, and maybe it's it's implicit in there. I would have expected to hear something about um, yes, the flexibility of, of having to adapt to your new circumstances and changing circumstances, but maybe also some kind of like radical determination to be able to tune everything out, which seems to me would be the opposite of flexibility. Like a hyper focus is what you're saying. Like a hyper determination to make it at all odds. I mean, I think that, I think that that's a determination that was definitely uh, present in everybody that we met. Um, the ability to tune everything out, I don't know. I think that in the concept of empathy, we're saying don't tune everything out. Mm-hmm. We're saying don't pretend like it's not happened to you and you can continue in the same way. And don't kind of put your feelings to one side and ignore it. Um, you do have to live the experience as well. And then with meaning making, you're setting yourself a goal. You know, this amazing couple that taught us taught us about their journeys walking through the Sudan to get to the promised land. Well, the key phrase there is the promised land because they wanted to get to the other side and that was their target. Jerusalem, actually, to be more specific, was what was driving them. They wanted to see this, you know, shining city on a hill. Uh, and then when they finally got there and Jerusalem, you know, weren't so shining, it wasn't exactly what they had envisaged in their mind's eye when they've been told about it every single day. Um, they then had to have the flexibility to deal with that and push forward in a society where there were very real challenges for Ethiopian Jews coming to Israel. Um, so we, I think all of those different elements are at play. I think they definitely do have that steely determination. All of the people that we saw have that kind of grit to get along. Um, but at the same time, they, they don't compartmentalize to the extent that they don't feel the emotions and the trauma that they've been through as well. Is, is it something... Um, the, the people that you interviewed, the stories that you examined, were there some that, was it a sense of overcoming something traumatic and then building a whole new life? Or, for example, you know, we talk, you talked about the, the mountain climber, um, you know, something that happened to him and then he, he overcame and he continues. Or, or the, uh, the, the gentleman who, was, uh, who became an Olympic athlete after being uh, a paraplegic. Mm. Uh, is it something specific and then their life changes or do you need a sense of immediate focus like on the journey to Israel through Sudan? And then once you're in Israel, I mean, life is hard for Ethiopian immigrants, certainly. And we, we had a whole episode talking about the Ethiopian Jewish experience here, but they're here and that journey is over. So is there, you know, I don't know if you could talk about that dynamic between things that you go through once versus things that maybe stay with you a lifetime, such as uh, a physical injury. Uh, It's interesting because I think um, they all uh, had a a moment. Well, not that's not a hundred percent true, but most of them had a moment that was extraordinarily traumatic. We um, interviewed Sherry Mandel, who lost her son in a horrific uh, terrorist attack. So there was a moment in time where this terrible event happened. Um, yeah, she, she faced a trauma. When uh, Noam Gershuni fell out of the sky, he faced a trauma. On the other hand, we did have people who, uh, you know, it wasn't a, a single event, a one 
you know, it, it happened and then it was like, okay, how do we lift ourselves up from it? But it was more of a process, like going through the Sudan was three years. That was a long time. Um, we interviewed Tal Brody. Uh, Tal Brody had ups and downs in his career, but I, I can't think of, uh, I'm sure, you know, he probably could think of some single traumatic event, but it wasn't so much a single event. It was more uh, a general, a, a more of a general kind of a thing. So, so we have, we have that, that single event trauma, and then we have others that have kind of had more ongoing uh, long-term exposure to uh, threatening situations or uh, difficult situations. Um, so we've kind of, we kind of look at, at both sides of that coin. But, you know, getting back to your question about whether um, a single-minded determination wouldn't be really important in resilience, and I think it really depends on what resolution you're zooming in. So we're kind of zooming out. It could be on the day-to-day, a lot of these people have to be single-minded, particularly when they're in that rehabilitation process, particularly when when they're in that peri-traumatic time, where in the time right after the trauma happened, they have to be pretty single-minded. But if you look at the wider picture, then I think you do see, and we saw uh, the tremendous amount of flexibility. If one thing didn't work, they would try something else. Uh, if one avenue was closed, then, well, let's let's find another avenue that'll be open. I would say though, you know, there's one uh, key that we really didn't call a key. We decided to limit it to three, but there's one more piece and it figures and we do talk about it in our book. And that has to do with the support that people get from their natural environment, their family members, their friends, their communities. And um, we know that Israel is a very, social society people are very involved with friends and family and community very involved and and these things uh, really come to people's aid uh when during times of of trouble you know you know how we all pull together when something happens and and that's true on the individual basis as well if something happens to somebody in your community you know everybody's over there sending food visiting watching the kids doing the laundry whatever has to be done and um in our stories we also hear about how family comes to the rescue um um I, again, I don't know why I keep thinking about Gadi Arconi today, but he, he talked with, with me about how his sister came to visit him every single day in the hospital. He was in the hospital for over six months. She traveled an hour and a half in each direction every single day to visit her brother in the hospital. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really amazing. I, I mean, I would follow on from that and say, by the way, Noam Gershani said the same thing. He was not left. For, um, during the months, months, months of recovery, he was not left without someone by his side the entire time. And you see that a lot here. But, you know, for, for, for better or for worse, Israelis get involved, right? I mean, I remember when my kid, I would push my, my kid in the pushchair down the street. If, if she didn't have socks on her feet, I could be told about it by five Jewish mothers before I'd walked, you know, um, uh, yeah. a block. Um, whereas, you know, when growing up in the UK, I could probably pass out in the street and before 
it would probably take 10 people to walk over my my unmoving body before somebody would actually do something. It's a very Israeli thing. They want to give you advice. They want to get involved. Everybody knows best. Um, it's a community as well. We feel everything together. Uh, we, For better and for worse, um, we experience it all together. When we're serving in the army, you know, those who are serving are defending people who are a mile, two miles, three miles, a small amount of, of distance between them. You know, when an American soldier goes overseas to serve, he's thinking of the people back home he's defending. But here, a soldier is so geographically close to the people that they're defending that they are really are defending their, their families. And so we feel everything. And we opened the book, you know, we wrote a whole book together and we actually have a forward each where we both um, do, it, do a separate forward. And my one begins with we're at the kitchen table, the breakfast table, and my older daughter is saying, speaking to my younger daughter, and it's Yom Azikaron. It's Remembrance Day for fallen Israeli soldiers and victims of terrorism. And my older daughter says to my younger daughter, you know, today, uh, don't worry, you're going to hear a siren, but don't worry, it's not the one where we run and hide. It's the one where we stand up and salute. And I just thought, Wow. That's the experience of a child in Israel. You know, the things they've been through in their short lives, they're so exposed to trauma, they're so exposed to death, you can't shield them from it, and maybe we shouldn't. And yet at the same time, there are these things we do together as a nation. Yom Azikaron is just an unbelievable day, as we all know, where everybody feels it in exactly the same way. And it's an incredible thing. So I think there's that element of national resilience that we also try and uh, drill down to in the book. So what, I mean, the subtitle of the book is What Israelis Can Teach the World. Okay. Um, and I'm curious here, I'm curious here, first of all, what Israelis can teach the world about resilience. Um, is there something specific culturally? Is there something our government uh, or civil society does that other countries could learn from specifically, like very concrete lessons. And then kind of maybe we could take that into a larger discussion about, you know, what about other countries that have experienced other traumas? What about countries that haven't experienced specific traumas, but obviously individual people certainly do experience traumas all the time. Um, is there something uniquely Israeli about the kind of, keys that you've come across and, and, and drawn as your, as your theme that ties everything together? So that's a great question. It really is a great question. And it's a question that I encountered um, when I came first to Biloxi, Mississippi, after Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. Hurricane Katrina was in 2005. Hi. And I showed up, it, it happened in July 2005, and I came about eight or nine months later to Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, with a delegation from the Israel Trauma Coalition, and um, we were set to work with schools and teachers and the educational system in Biloxi. Biloxi was pretty hard hit from the hurricane. You heard a lot about New Orleans, but New Orleans was, you know, that, that made a lot of noise. Biloxi didn't make so much noise, but they lost about 55 people and bridges got washed out and roads were washed out and houses were destroyed and schools were displaced. So um, when I got there, I said, well, gee, I don't know if what I know about resilience is a is it teachable to americans is it specific to 
to Israel. And, um, and I told the, I remember sitting with the first group of teachers that I sat with and I said that to them. I said, I'm really not sure, uh, whether what I do in Israel is actually, is it going to have any relevance for you? And, and basically I said, we're going on a journey here together. Let's see. Let's see. I'm going to teach you what I teach them and let's see what works and let's see what we need to adapt to change. And to much to my, I guess I would say I was surprised at the time. It was almost a perfect fit. The um, concepts that we worked with here in Israel were absolutely relevant and adaptable to what was going on in Biloxi. So you had to change the words. The external packaging was a little different. We were talking in Israel at the time about terrorist bombers, about body parts, people being blown up, terrible things that were happening in Israel at the time. And they were talking about wind damage and insurance Yes, that's how they say it there in Biloxi, insurance. Um, and, um, um, and, and contractors, th- these were the, you know, the, this was the meat of the conversation. So the, the, the meat of the conversation or the content was, was different, but the, the structures were exactly the same. When we sat with teachers, um, this and it was like nine months after Katrina, and, and we said to them, "How are you doing?" And they said, "How are we doing?" Nobody's asked us that. Nobody, nobody really has paid any attention to how we're doing. We're busy taking care and taking care and taking care of the students and the parents and our families, and we're taking care. How are we doing? And that's exactly the point of resilience. And that goes back to the empathy part. It's being empathic to yourself, being able to listen to yourself and to listen to other people, taking that time. So I think, you know, M- Michael and I have had many discussions about this. And I, I'm a firm believer that what makes for Israeli resilience really makes for resilience all over the world. And that is the point of our book. Um, that we have something to teach you. And the reason we have to teach you this is because we've experienced so much. We've thought about it. We've reflected about it. And um, we, we have a lot of experience. So listen to us and see what you can take into your own world. See what, you, what can help you in your lives. That's really a very strong message in this book. It's a terrifically strong message. It's also, for me, the idea is tantalizing that there'll be a book on, on bookshelves that talks about what Israelis can teach the world. And I really believe we can. You know, we quote Princess Diana in the book. She called Israel a plucky little country. Um, and, and it's nice to see, you know, isn't that sweet? Uh, uh, and so um, it's nice to take those things that can be seen as pejorative and just flip them. Uh, and I, and we talk about that in the opening, you know, the Israeli, the symbol of this country, right? The cactus, you know, like England has the rose and Holland has the tulip. We got the cactus, the cactus fruit, right? The prickly pear, uh, <laughs> that sabra, um, that is prickly on the inside, but yes, it is warm and sweet on the inside. And so I think that we have acclimatized ourselves to this reason, region to which we are indigenous, of course. And, 
the way we react to unfortunately the unbearable tragedy that we've had and trauma that we've had uh hit us in such a short time since the rebirth of israel is something that we can teach the world so i would be great you know joe senator joe lieberman was very kind to read the book and and uh endorse the book and he says you know in the same way that israel is the holy land and it's the startup nation um it would be great for israelis to be remembered by their is resilience and uh that would be, and, and our juanceness as well if i may joking aside about Jewans, but I, I I absolutely agree with that. I mean, there's something that, um, you know, Israel is the startup nation and Israel is, you know, innovative and dynamic and all of the things that we like to say, but that isn't so much of a, a, a you know, those traits are things that don't necessarily reflect the values or the realities of all Israelis in, in all of the different scenarios that they might be finding themselves living in. You know, I, I think that there's a statistic that you know, the entire startup economy of Israel is something like 8% of Israelis work in it or something like that. Like it's remarkably small. Yet the, the, the narrative of resilience within, within Israel and within Israeli society is a narrative that deeply affects each and every one of us wherever we are. And, and it's not necessarily even a Jewish thing. By, by all means, it's not. It's, you know, if you live in this country, and, and maybe it has to do with our small size or maybe it has to do with our, 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 our short history uh, modern history and our very ancient, uh, deep, uh, uh, you know, um, more, more, more ancient history. Um, or maybe it has to do with just, you know, if you take all kinds of people from all over the world with all their experiences and throw them into that kind of a pressure cooker sort of a scenario and then put on external variables coming from the outside that want to, uh, you know, take it down, that you're going to forge, going back to that, you know, the, the metaphor of resilience being something that's, you know, iron or metal being forged you're going to forge people who have the the ability to withstand uh all kinds of challenges in a very you know we like to say in israel it's this it's uh the country or the mentality of yehieb said you know, mm-hmm. it'll be okay you know oh you got in a car accident you lost, you lost your leg in your arm yeah, said of, you'll be fine don't, don't worry about it you yourself off and, and you know move on with your day um I want to, you know, I, I want to be careful. Though. I mean, like there's, you know, resilience is, is something that we definitely have, but, but, you know, there are also a lot of, to use a, a, a word that might be overplayed these days. I mean, there's a lot of victims in, in, in Israel as well. I mean, there's a lot of people that go through life, um, you know, and it is not a reflection of whether they're happy to live here or not, but like the difficulties of life in this country are, are real mm-hmm. and they are, um, especially nowadays, you know, they confront a lot of people in very, very visceral ways. And it is, uh, it is hard sometimes to, to be resilient. It's hard to, to put one foot in front of the other. Um, and I think in many cases, you know, I'm just thinking about Noam Gilshoni because I know him, yeah. you know, um, you know, yes, you don't have a choice. You, know, you have to keep on, you have to keep on going because if you're going to commit yourself to continuing to live, you have to try to do it to the best of your ability. Um, but on the other hand, you know, how many people, how many people are just, you know, in despair, um, and, and how can they learn, um, you know, and Israel is a very unique place in that there are, you know, the NGO, uh, ecosystem here is very large and Naomi, you can definitely reflect on this in your, in your uh, involvement with, uh, with, with, with the psychotrauma, um, you know, there's a lot of organizations that are out there that are doing a very, very, very valiant job uh, assisting people and you know helping them get through uh, traumas and getting through their lives. Um, 
is is that a reflection of our governments being you know hands off of these problems that, that people have to come in and kind of pick up the uh, pick up the reins and and carry it forward or 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 conversely is it that you know we're just so unique in that we don't expect the government to do those things for us like another country might expect because we do have to do it ourselves. Well, I don't know if I want to weigh in so much about, um, you know, governments and how much uh, the government gives and how much the government doesn't give. Cause I think Israel is kind of a socialist society and people are used to the government doing for them. And this notion of NGOs is relatively new here. It's relatively young. Uh, yeah, there are a tremendous amount of NGOs. And I think, um, it's interesting, but, but I, I would kind of like to steer the conversation into discussion about adversity. And I think that, sure. um, that is a key that is so often lip services paid to it, but people don't spend a lot of time thinking and talking about it. And truly that is one of the things that we see, we saw again and again in all of our interviewees. And I think that's something that you feel very strongly when you live in Israel. And perhaps because we all here, all of us are Olim, we all move to Israel. So when we experience adversity in our chosen country, we say, ah, but we're here for a reason. There's a reason. There's meaning to our lives. There's meaning in this adversity. And that gives us strength. And we say, oh, yeah, that's right. I chose to be here. So somebody yelled at me and somebody pushed me and I didn't get the job I wanted and I don't have enough money to finish the month, but I chose to be here. Um, and that gives my life meaning. I think that's very important in terms of its place in the whole uh, conglomerate of uh, what resilience really is. And, and we saw with each and every one of our interviewees that um, the meaning that they can find in their lives, for some, it was like, you know, it's just right out there in your face. It's like, again, going back to Sherry Mandel. So they created, she and her husband, Seth, created the Kobe Mandel Foundation um, to help uh, victims of terror people, children who had lost uh, parents or siblings to terror, first terror, and then afterwards they expanded it to loss in general. Um, and it, this was, uh, this is an organization that really, uh, uh, filled a gap in services here in Israel and filled a need and, uh, was tremendously, uh, helpful. And I think gave Sherry and Seth also a tremendous amount of meaning in their lives. Um, nothing can ever replace uh, a child and um, it's not like the tragedy got, got washed away no. in any way, shape or form, but somehow it gave meaning to their lives so that they could continue their lives. And uh, even in the ones where it's a little bit less obvious, if you scratch the surface a little bit, uh, meaning is such an important piece of what helps people. And there is, I do believe that in Israel, there's an openness to discussion about the essence of life and the meaning of life in a way that perhaps those of us who came from the U.S. or from the U.K., things are a little bit more superficial. You don't always get down to that level. Um, it's funny you mentioned uh, the Mandel family, uh, and we were 
uh, fortunate to have um, the comedian Avi Lieberman as he was trying to raise money for Kobe for comedy. And uh, we had an episode with them trying yes. to help them uh, also raise money. And we'll say it again um, it, for yeah. those who are listening to this episode who didn't listen to that episode, if you want to donate to uh, Comedy for Kobe and for the Kobe Mandel Foundation, it's a fantastic cause. And uh, yeah. you can, if right. you want to get some fun out of it, uh, not of the thing, but you can go back and check out that episode we did with the comedian. And it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, full disclosure, I, I've been Avi Lieberman's warm-up guy. <laughs> oh, did you do <laughs> it's not in my official bio, but now I'm um, You mentioned shows. You mentioned, I mean, the four of us chose to live here. Um, certainly a lot of the first, uh, at one point or another, you know, most of us, except for the, you know, 10th generation who've been here or whatever. Um, what about people who didn't choose to live here? What about, you know, the child who's growing up in Sderot, who's uh, known nothing but rockets their entire life? I mean, um, is there, you know, maybe that brings me to a second question here. What about children? You know, how do you deal, how do you teach resilience to children who, who are 10 years old and have known nothing but rocket fire their whole lives? Oh, you're talking to somebody who uh, has an answer for that. <laughs> so I think the way you teach resilience to kids is to teach resilience to the adults in the kids' environments. I really think that's the way to go about it. And that's the way we always did it um, right from the start. So in the very beginning, when I started, I came from the field of school psychology and I was at the Mandel Institute for two years where I worked on, created this program for building resilience for the educational system. Not connected and, to the um, Mandel. A different Excuse Mandel. Me? Yeah. No connected to the other Mandel. Different Mandel. Different. Jack Mandel. Jack and his brothers. <laughs> right. Um, and um, uh, the idea was we were going to train teachers who could then work with students. We, I wanted to get to every single kid in Israel. That that wasn't really going to happen. So the way we could go about doing that, or at least conceptualize doing that, would be to train teachers who could then work with students. And um, I was very fortunate to be able to do that. Not only to do that, but to research to see if it works, to see actually if you train teachers in resilience building techniques and encourage them to take this into their work in the classroom, will it impact on children? So we did a study, a quasi-experimental study that was published in a peer-reviewed journal, and we found that, in fact, teachers who did our workshop, four sessions, it's really, really short, four sessions, and um, uh, we, we tested the kids before, and after the workshop intervention, and we found that students whose teachers participated had far fewer symptoms, uh, had less anxiety, uh, far fewer post-traumatic symptoms, less anxiety, were doing much better than students in parallel classrooms, parallel schools, where the teachers hadn't received the training yet. Of course, we went on to then do the training in, with those classrooms as well, and then those students also came down in terms of their post-traumatic symptoms and their anxiety levels. So I think the way you work with young children, children, um, is really through the adults in their environment. And the ones that are most easily accessible are the teachers, are the caretaker, the care workers. It's much more difficult to access parents 
for a series. You can get them in for a night, uh, for a, a single session, but it's very hard to get them to sign on for four or five or six sessions. So, um, that, that was our experience. We also did some very interesting research, um, about the impact of trauma on young children and found that mothers who were post-traumatic definitely had kids who were far more post-traumatic. So we know that if we can teach mothers to self-regulate, to calm themselves down, then this will impact on kids. So you say, what about resilience of kids in Stay Route? I think, I yes, I think you can impact on it. And yes, we taught the teachers to talk about meaning. What meaning do you have in your life? What meaning is there living in Stay Road? Why continue to live in Stay Road? And that whole uh, notion that there's, that we don't give up and that we're here for a reason and, and all those kinds of things, whatever it is that it, you know, I'm not saying that there's a right or a wrong here, but, but giving some time and space to the notion of meaning is something that's important to do also with children, not only with adults. And so uh, that's actually uh, in my professional uh, capacity. That's one of the things. I, I have a, um, a question and I will apologize to you uh, and to our listeners uh, because I'm here in Dubai. I have to leave in the middle of this really fascinating conversation and Benny um, will carry it on. Um, and I know he'll do an amazing job. Um, you know, the, the you're talking about the Israeli Context here, obviously, and it's called Israel resilience. I'll get that. Oh my! Israel resilience. You know, I, I would be curious. Like, what do you tell a Syrian going through the Syrian civil war? What do you tell a Yemeni child? Um, and, and you know, it's it's kind of funny being here. I'm, I'm in the Arab world, and I'm hearing a very different discourse here. Um, Unrelated to Israel, now, of course, a lot of people are talking about with me about Israel, but I'm hearing, you know, about the things that you see from the other side of this region that we never think about, which is food for many, many episodes that we're going to do. Um, but, you know, what would you tell a, a Yemeni child um, um, half starved and, and, you know, in the midst of a civil war, a Syrian child or um, or whatever, um, you know, because they don't have that Zionist dream. So, like. Maybe they don't even have a Syrian dream. I mean, that's, I don't know if you have an answer, but but that's kind of food for thought. And then kind of my last question before I, um, uh, before I have to run here would be, uh, certainly other countries today especially are going through much worse things than we are. Um, is there things that maybe you thought about and maybe this is the idea for the, for the sequel, um, what we can learn from others? Um, as far as developing resilience. That will need to be in Hebrew. Well, <laughs> really easy. I, I have to <laughs> okay. I would actually like to uh, take on the question about what do you, uh, what do you do with a, a Yemeni child or a Syrian child? And, you know, um, resilience is somewhere towards the top of Maslow's pyramid. Maslow's pyramid talks about how, the most important things are physical safety and uh, physical needs, you know, shelter, housing. Uh, and then you go into the emotional needs and then you go into the higher level needs of uh, self-worth and self-concept and, and, and self eventually reaching self-actualization. So resilience is, is somewhere in the middle there at least. And, 
you know, to talk about resilience for with a kid who doesn't have shelter and doesn't have food, I think would be missing the point. So I think we have to be very clear about that. Um, that that's first. Um, having said that, um, I do think that if I were to go work in a refugee camp in Syria or in Jordan um, or in Yemen, and I would love to do all of that. <laughs> I really would. I really truly would. Um, so um, what I would do is first try to provide and create a safe space for kids to be able to talk about their feelings. Uh, because I think that that is one of the keys to resilience. We can't push, this is what Michael was saying initially, you can't push away these feelings and it's all going to go away. It's all going to be better. You have to give a place for difficult mm -hmm. feelings as well as for good feelings. And um, what I always say is that if you cut off the difficult feelings, then you're going to cut off all feelings and you won't have an opportunity to feel joy and happiness and all those wonderful things as well. So you want to feel everything. Uh, but it's scary. So with kids, you have to figure out a way how you provide a space, a safe space for them to experience it, to realize that they're not going to disintegrate if they experience it, to teach them how to calm themselves down, to help build their personal resources to be able to cope with the adversity. So there are, there are plenty of things you can do, plenty of things. Over and out. Go have a wonderful dinner. Have a great yeah, dinner. Bring us some waiting for me. What are you bringing Benny back from Dubai? That's what I want to know. I'll find something good, but my, my uh, gracious host is waiting for me, and I don't want to keep him waiting any longer. Um, continue, please continue this amazing conversation. I'm actually going to come back as a fan and listen to the rest of this uh, once on there. <laughs> Make sure to like us on I Facebook. Absolutely. Well, and the book will be out in the UAE soon, Dan. You can tell them. It's going to be out in the UAE and Amazon soon. Amazing, amazing. By the way, and, by the way, I saw a bookstore, a real bookstore, like like the size of Barnes & Noble's here, 80% in English. They read. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, everything. It's beautiful here. Uh, anyway, well, tell the tell this bookstore that we're very happy to come and do a signing yes. event. Absolutely, we'll do. We'll do. You continue this uh, truly fascinating conversation, um, and and thank you for this contribution, uh, not to just our show, but really to to the world. Um, it's amazing, and I'll and I'll be glad to read it and continue this conversation with you uh, offline. Benny, enjoy, and uh, see you guys. Thanks so much. What we need to talk about is is Corona yeah. and COVID because I know that's where he wants to go. So, what is there anything in our book? And this is a good question: Is there anything in our book that would help people during this time of pandemic? You know, we've actually finished the writing the, the book. We put touches. the finishing touches on the book, um, just as COVID was hitting, um, and we thought about, well, should we relate to it in the book? And we really spent a little bit of time tossing it around. And I'm really glad that we didn't because that was March. Who knew that in October, November, it's November 1st today, who knew that we would still be in this mess? So I'm really glad that mm. the book stands alone. I agree with you. I'm glad we didn't put it in the book. Um, but I do think that the, it's been made the book much more timely because resilience is a commodity that everybody wants and needs right now. 
So I think it's very much of the moment. Um, there are certainly things that people can take from that. We are living in this day-to-day -day of COVID, but I think people need to be able to see beyond it. And it's very hard because it's, you know, it's like like some of these people we spoke about, they, they're experiencing this trauma in a very real and immediate way. And somehow we have to guide, they have to guide themselves to look ahead and look at the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, when we met Amit Gofer, uh, he had, through an, a freak accident, the craziest of accidents on an, on an ATV, an all-terrain vehicle, he'd become a quadriplegic. And so he was really spoke to us about being in the depths of despair and trauma, and it's hard to find your way out. And we explained it in the chapter about him, you know, the, through various ways and the various people around him, he saw his way forward. So we know this pandemic will be with us for a while, but we also know it's not going to be with us forever. And therefore, how can we, you know, make meaning of what's happening? How can we focus on the positives? How can we build ourselves so that we get through it? And so I definitely think it's relevant for these times. So I just had a great idea, Michael. <laughs> so in our next book, we're going to talk about three more keys of okay. resilience. And one of those keys, one of those keys really is hope. And that's exactly what you talk about. Because um, if you say to yourself, oh, my God, this is it. We're going to be in this forever. It's never going to be finished. I thought it was going to be finished uh, after Passover. I thought it was going to be finished uh, after summer vacation. I thought it was going to be finished. Yeah, it, it's never going to finish. Then you get really down, say in, the that. Dump, down say in the it's dump. never going to finish. <laughs> right. There is a horizon. It's going to finish one day. We're going to, we may return to a new reality. I don't think we're going to bounce back. I think whatever happens is we're going to be bouncing mm -hmm. forward. It's We're coming into this new reality with all sorts of new understandings, new ways of being in the world. Uh, it's going to be, it's interesting times. It's really interesting times, but we're going to get there. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. So I'm not on my cruise now. I was supposed to be on a cruise to China and Japan right now. <laughs> I'm not there. <laughs> Let me ask this question, if I, if I could. It seems that something in the mold of Israeli resilience was broken by COVID in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And, and maybe you'll reject the premise of the question uh, outright, and that's okay if you do. It feels like, you know, it, it, this, this doesn't feel like it would, be, you know, the reaction of Israelis right now doesn't feel the same as if, uh, you know, during, during a war. It doesn't, I don't feel that, you know, we're all in this together. Let's all help out each other. It's like we're living in such a polarized, ridiculous political time. And it could be that that preexisted, you know, pre predates COVID. And, and as a result of that, we, we find ourselves going into COVID, you know, in a, in a, in a kind of a, um, from a low point, uh, in terms of our ability to relate to one another. But, um, you know, how does COVID differ? Do you agree that something feels off in terms of Israeli, you know, is resilience during this period? Uh, and if so, why? So I have some thoughts about um, what's happening. And there's actually been some a study that came out just last week um, from um, a fellow that I know in Tel Aviv who measured 800 people at three points in time uh, in May, uh, in July, 
and in October. And he shows a definite uh, drop in what he calls resi resilience measures, um, whether they be personal resilience or national resilience. And when he talks about national resilience, he talks about our faith in our leaders. And I think that's something that has really been torn asunder here. I think um, our faith in, in the leadership, it doesn't matter whether you're right wing or left wing or center. Um, there's just not a lot of um, ability to hold on. There's been really, a, to my mind, a dearth of leadership. And leadership is so important during times of crisis. Um, so I think that's one thing that happened. Also, the second thing is that COVID has gone on for a very long time. It's eight months already. Um, you know, most of our wars, even our long wars recently were a month and a half. You know, eight months is a terrifically long time for us to be in this situation. So I think rather than say how terrible things are and how terrible what happened to Israeli resilience, there's a lot of resilience out there. You know, we have, uh, we started the vaccine process yeah. today. Very exciting. I was listening to somebody on the radio today talking about how they started a program for people who have healed from Corona now go to visit older people who are isolated and go into work in the Corona wards and you go with all the protection because, you know, we're still not 100% sure that people can't get it again. There have been a few reported cases of people getting it more than once. But for the most part, uh, people will not get it again. So, you know, these are interesting ideas. And I think um, the media, the slant in the media is to, to, to really say things are terrible and they're awful. And we have to be careful here. I think, I think uh, and self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? You know, like if you, you can wallow in the negativity or you can look at the positive and in the health sphere, in the welfare sphere, in uh, in the educational sphere, they've had to adapt so much. I mean, what, what crazy yes. challenges we've asked of our, our educators uh, and they have. And they have the IDF, the way the IDF has adapted. You know, all of the regional threats did not go away during COVID-19. They remain, despite the peace processes that happened. And yet at the same time, uh, you know, we have people who are defending us from those threats, and yet they have to cope with COVID procedures. So a hell of a lot is being asked from a hell of a lot of people, and they really are rising to the challenge. Uh, mo mo most definitely. It's, it's a really interesting thing. It's like... You're, you're right. We do live in sort of a, a, you know, an echo chamber of the media. The media wants us to to feel like, uh, you know, we're at the brink of, of you know, destroying each other. Um, and, it, and it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's something that I, you know, I feel Israel being tested now more than ever on, on that regards. You know, it's it's not like you said, it's not the six day war. It's the it's the we're in 10 months in and counting war uh, right. against an invisible right. enemy that some people, you know, we see. You know, I don't know if like to name it or not name it, but it's like you see thousands of people just disregarding it, and we all know who those people are in, the, in what we see in in the press, uh, and it's and it's very very frustrating because we all know that that would not be the case if we were fighting a war against whomever in our region or or beyond. Um, is there? I mean, I want to try to you know tie this in a little bit to the work of Stand with Us. Um, you know, how do you explain? 
in in the context of your work in public diplomacy, um, specifically with with campus, uh, and maybe you can get into explaining a little bit in depth about what Stand with Us does and how and how the book ties in with that. Uh, but how do you explain this concept to others, especially college students who, when they do go to a place like like the Gaza perimeter, when they do go to Sderot, uh, to Otefaza, and they see children living there, you know, one of the one of the first thoughts that they might have is like, what kind of crazy parents would make their kids live in a place like this? Why don't they just leave? Um, you know, how do you explain that meaning to somebody who, you know, that I understand the meaning and you both definitely mm-hmm. understand that meaning, um, but how do you explain it to somebody who looks at that and says, no, that's, that's bullshit. Like they sh- shouldn't be living there with their kids. They're crazy. So I, I always say the most Israeli letter I in the word Israel isn't the one at the beginning. It's the one at the end, Israeli. Okay. And for me, uh, you know, people talk about Israel's perception in the world. And I think it's, you know, to get through to people, it's not necessarily just about the country, but about its people, because people connect to people. So actually, when you have people, when you have a human resource that you can work against or speak with and communicate with freely, suddenly all the tough questions can be answered. And you're listening to somebody who's credible and real and has their own personal story to tell. Uh, and that's always been Israel's problem in that it never got to play on a level playing field. You know, we don't want any special treatment for Israel. We don't want it to be singled out uh, in one way or another. We just want a level playing field so that Israel can be judged the same way as other nations around the world. Obviously, it has things that are unique and special. You know, it's the only Jewish country in the world, 193 countries in the world, the only Jewish one. It is the place that is our ancestral homeland. It is the place we are indigenous to. It is a place where our story began and our story continues. And so there is so much to say for this country. And yet I feel that by making that connection between peoples, we're able to tell Israel's story in the most compelling way. I Stand With Us was set up, you know, we spoke about Sherry and Seth Mandel and the terrible killing of Kobe Mandel. Uh, when Kobe and another young boy were killed, um, Yosef Ishron, uh, in that terrorist attack, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for Stand With Us to be created back in 2001. Um, there had been such misreporting about what Israel was and Israel was undergoing these waves of terror. And the way that the the murder of Kobe Bandel was being reported was almost like these young boys were responsible for their own death. And so, you know, they, oh, they were settlers. Oh, you know, it was like their, their, their lives were worthless in the way that the reporting was. And so, um, our founder, Ros Rothstein, together with Jerry Rothstein, her husband, our co-founder and co-founder Esther Renza got together in a living room in Los Angeles and brought people from left and right and all across the Jewish community and said, what is being done and what can we do to make a difference and help people tell Israel's story and understand the reality of Israel? And we started with the low-hanging fruit. You know, Jews need to know. Jews are as susceptible as anyone else to propaganda about Israel. And they don't necessarily, as you know, have, you know, the best education they can possibly have. And so we started with that low hanging fruit, speaking to Jews. We started putting uh, brochures on synagogues, you know, across synagogues on the high holy days to teach people about Israel. We grew from West coast to East uh, and all across the United States and now around the world, we're active on five continents. And what we try and do is the same thing everywhere. We want to, in the same breath, counter misinformation about Israel and actively educate to support so that people will support Israel around the world. And what we've become is a movement. And I use the word advisedly 
a movement of Jews and non-Jews. We have Muslims, Christians, people of all faiths and none all across the world, many different languages. Uh, we started on the college campus. We moved to high school and middle school. We have a legal department, the Sadov legal department that works to provide pro bono attorney assistance to anyone facing a BDS threat or problems on campus, divest from Israel motions in student uh, uh, governments. And so we try and be there to, to build and build and build this movement of support. And it's re resulted in, you know, over 500,000 college students who've been part of our programs, over 500,000 high school students who've been part of our programs. Here in Israel, over 100,000 people who've visited Israel through our center in Jerusalem. Please, God, the tourism will come back and they'll all come back as well and experience it for themselves and see for themselves what Israel really is. So for me, the link between that and, and this book is that one of the things we've tried to do and stand with us is say, you know, the best ambassadors for this country are Israelis themselves. And we've tried to train Israelis and empower Israelis to tell their own personal story through the Stand With Us Israel Fellowship and then send them out around the world as shluchim and to do just that. And so it all kind of fits into place in terms of where this book fits into the kind of work that Stand With Us is doing. What is Stand With Us doing now because of COVID? Like when you can't have people visit Israel, what are your activities? Yeah. Uh, so Stand With Us has been affected by COVID like everyone has. I would be remiss and you would think less of me if I didn't hear say that if you love the work of Stand With Us supporting Israel around the world, you can support it at standwithus.com slash donate. Uh, and please do. Uh, but, uh, Let's put that in the show notes uh, below so everybody can go check it out. And in addition to buying his resilience, they should also uh, check out Stand With Us. Thank you, Benny. I appreciate that very much. Uh, and so, yeah, we've been affected by COVID. Unfortunately, you know, the, while this virus has been gripping the world, the virus of anti-Semitism has been continuing. And so BDS motions continue. Uh, attempts to boycott Israel, unfortunately, continue. Even when, when school isn't in session physically, anti-Israel motions in student body councils and governments continue. And at the same time, we push back against it. So we mount very real campaigns backed by our massive social media. We have a huge reach online and are active in 18 different languages. And our second most viewed language on social media is actually in Arabic, which is a very uh, encouraging thing. Uh, we're able to push back against BDS campaigns and win. Uh, this week, there was a significant win in, in the UK that a whole coalition of, you know, Jewish community organizations and others were part of. And that was the, uh, uh, the EHRC, the Equalities and Human Rights Commission report into Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. Uh, there have been many uh, acts at uh, student body government that we've been pushing back in divestment motions. And at the same time, you know, part of it is countering the negative and the other is engendering the positive, you know, making people buy Israeli goods, opening people's eyes to Israeli culture. And there's so much that can be done. We launched Sam With Us TV, which is our online portal, which has really been huge, over a million views already on all of our shows uh, with some incredible guests from, and some of who are connected to the book, like Rabbi Sachs and Natan Sharansky and Miri Eisen, who we didn't speak about, Colonel Miri Eisen, Israel's former spokesperson. Uh, so they've all been on Stand With Us TV shows and that's been incredibly successful. So we've done a grand pivot. We were lucky in that Israel was ahead of the curve with this virus. So we were able to work with our presence here in Israel to leverage our work to virtual. And we've been doing every day, we're doing uh, online seminars and conferences. And we've even been able to take people to Jerusalem via our tours. You know, we have amazing tour guides with a cameraman and a whole crew that go. Uh, oh, you're doing the virtual tours. 
yeah, leading schools and colleges and people to Israel. You know, it's so sad to see Jerusalem and Israel with no tourists. It's, you know, makes you want to cry. But at the same time, we've actually been able to bring more people to the Kotel that, you know, people to the Kotel who haven't been before. We have had school kids who sent us notes. We put the note in going, you know, they have, we've, hosted bar and bat mitzvahs at the Kotel um, virtually. And so we've been able to do some amazing things through the creativity of our staff. And uh, that's been really uh, inspirational to see. Have you always been in the Israel advocacy sphere? It did, how did you come to be uh, the director of Stand With Us Israel? So, you know, we always say the Zionists aren't born, they're educated. You know, they have to be raised. Um, so I was lucky enough to be raised a Zionist by my parents, who were very connected to Israel. I was always very involved in my community growing up in London. And uh, I was direct, I became direct, I was working for a short time in advertising and then I realized uh, that I thought it was soulless. And I saw an advert to be director of informal Jewish education uh, at uh, JFS, which is the largest Jewish high school in Europe. It's I think the oldest Jewish school in the world. It was established in 1793. The JFS stands for Jews free school. It's free in that you didn't have to pay money for it. And uh, the original intention of the school was kind of take these Eastern European immigrants and drum the Jewishness out of them and make them good British subjects. Uh, and nowadays it acts more to make them um, wonderful citizens of the UK, of course, but at the same time, very much in touch with their Jewish and Israeli uh, and Jewish identity and with Israel. And so that was my job when I was at the school and I was there for five years. And uh, long story short, back in the day when uh, a certain President Trump used to be in a program called The Apprentice, Israeli TV took The Apprentice and made it a different format. I don't know if you remember, but instead of calling it The Apprentice, they called it The Ambassador, Hashagreh. With Eitan yeah. Schwartz. Yes, it was great. Um, and so a friend of mine who was working at the Israeli embassy in London lent me the VHS Benny, obviously you're too young, but a VHS is like chess, man. <laughs> Come on, I'm not that. I'm not there yet. All right, so uh, a VHS. Yes, she lent me a VHS. I stuck it in the machine. I watched this program, The Ambassador. I thought, wow, here we have this issue of young people leaving this safe bubble in their Jewish high school and stepping onto campus where it's extraordinarily tough to defend Israel. And look at this cool kind of gimmick, and basically. I uh, took the format, I spoke to the program makers, I took the format, we created the show in the high school. Uh, we had eight boys, eight girls, they had to square off against each other. We filmed it to production level standards. And each week they had to, you know, sell a vacation to Israel on the streets and debate about Israel and write an op-ed and get it published. And eventually there was a winner who was the ambassador. They won a trip to Israel. So it became very successful, but we needed educational material to back up this very cool uh, reality TV show, which we burned onto DVDs and played on a giant screen in front of 500 high school students. And so for that, I turned to a then new organization called Stand With Us, uh, who had beautifully researched and clear materials. And uh, I found them, they found me, and the rest is history. And I've been doing this for 15 years. It is the love of my life. Um, aside from my wife and wonderful children. Uh, and uh, we have an amazing dynamic team. We've grown a huge staff who just are so impassioned about Israel and work around the clock to bring people close to Israel. And it's been uh, just a terrific journey. So yeah, um, that's my story.
find so much meaning also in the work that you're doing. It's it's to hear the trajectory of somebody. You know, we have so many guests that that come on, and I'm always, you know, if Dan's more talking about the policy side of things or or the nitty gritty, I'm always trying to make it a little bit more personal. Uh, but to hear a story of somebody who goes through such a trajectory. And especially knowing a little bit about UK Jewry, I know that advocacy in the UK is particularly difficult uh, in terms of, of, of the street. Uh, so it, it's definitely very important work, but also to see that you've, that you've succeeded in it and flourished 15 years on in, in, in the organization, is, uh, it's great uh, to see somebody fulfilled by their work. Um, is it becoming less, uh, you know, there's a hasbara, uh, in the Hebrew word for, for I don't even know how to say it. Some people would translate it as almost like propaganda, which yeah. is a bad, a bad word. PR, public public diplomacy for, for Israel. Um, do you find that it's less necessary now? Is it ever? Is it as necessary as always? How is it changing? Um, you know, I remember back in the day, uh, you know, being a student in, in Washington, D.C. at American University, and there were like Hasbara organizations, but it was like, I wouldn't say that it was in its infancy, but it was definitely a different game than it is now. It didn't seem to be so organized. Um, how, what, what's going on with it? So I think, look, I, I understand how Israelis have that kind of shorthand Hasbara. It's not a term that we use. Um, likewise, PR either, because I don't think that Israel is something you need to gloss over. We're an educational organization. At the root, we want to tell the truth about Israel. I believe that we should talk about everything, ask every question under the sun and hear every answer. We should hear from Palestinians of different shades and types. We should hear from Arabs from across the Arab world. And we should hear from different types of Jews. Every question should be on the table. I think that's actually the difference between us and our detractors. We believe that we should have the conversation and the discussion, but let's be honest, make it honest, because I think at root, then you see the justice of Israel's cause. And so there's as much a need for it as ever. Unfortunately, um, I'll say we, the collective we, and, and we can say whoever that is, you know, we, the Jewish community, uh, have n failed our kids and we haven't given them the strong bond that we possibly could have uh, to Israel. We haven't had this kind of uh, no holds barred discussions that we should have. We haven't empowered them as much as possible to answer the tough questions and to grapple with the issues or to have a fundamental understanding of what their relationship with Israel is. You know, it's as simple as Chinese people come from China, Indians come from India, Jews come from Israel. Jews come from Israel. I didn't say anything earth shattering. And yet some people would be surprised by that. I spoke to some kids who were on a birthright trip one time and I asked them the question why their trip is called birthright. And they didn't know. So we have to spell it out sometimes and we have to be effective and we have to be creative in the way that we educate and reach out to people. And so that I, I think that is as important as ever. And as you know, the campus turnover is constant. So our future leaders are being born there. So that's why campus will always be such a relevant place for us to be. But we need to start earlier, high school, middle school, giving people a love and inspiration of Israel. They should be inspired by Israel um, at a very early age. Without a doubt. Do, do you do you find that it's, um, like you mentioned that we haven't, or, or this generation, our parents maybe didn't do a good, as good of a job as, as, as we would have wanted them to do. Um, what happened? I mean, did, did people, is it that Israel is now not in its infancy and therefore it's something that many people can take for granted. And is that ultimately, is that a good thing? I mean, I, I just want to reflect on, on how 
you know, we seem to be very, maybe I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe this exists elsewhere, but it seems to be that we're very unique in that as a country, we do have many organizations that try to tell the story of Israel. You know, I don't see, you know, many story, you know, many organizations trying to tell the story of Italy or, or, you know, China or, uh, you know, Australia for that matter. Um, will there come a day, you know, is, is it that the end game of this is like it's that Israel is just so normal and, 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 uh, obvious that this will no longer need to exist? I think that those countries don't have a similar challenge as Israel does. They have their own challenges and some of it is PR and policy and that's what they have to deal with. Um, And sometimes their governments can just deal with it. I think that our government is not placed to deal with this because this isn't sort of a government to government, state actors to state actor problem. Uh, What we have here is is an assault on Israel's legitimacy, on its reputation that's coming from all across the board. And it's a grassroots battle. Uh, You know, unfortunately, there is so much misinformation out there and it's being churned out on a day-to-day basis by people who really do mean Israel harm. Their end goal is very much stated. And if they can't win by conventional warfare and they can't win by terror warfare, then this is a war of words and images that they're fighting in order to overturn Israel's legitimacy. Um, and they're doing that in the legal sphere. They're doing it in the cultural sphere. They're doing it uh, in state bodies and, and bodies like the UN and the EU. Uh, and so we see all of that playing out. So, yes, that unfortunately, that battle is only going to continue. But what we can do is to not take anything for granted. You know, we're living in a difficult time where there's so much access to information, but there's so much access to misinformation too. So we need to play on the battlefield. We need to be an actor on that battlefield. We need to adopt all the different tactics that we can to be as creative and clever as we can, to utilize social media, digital media as much as we can, and and, and to reach out to people as broadly as possible and show them what is the connecting point between them and Israel. And it will be different for a young Jew in one country than another. It will be different from a Christian in another. It will be different to a Muslim in another. But those connecting points do exist. And some, for some of them, for a lot of them, people are the issue, which again leads into the book is resilience. You know, we're looking at Israeli people. You can find inspiration. You can find lessons you can learn from Israelis as a people. Uh, you don't have to sign up to be a Zionist per se. You don't have to support the state of Israel. Um, but there's so much to be inspired from the Israeli people. Uh, I have I have kind of one question here, and I think then we'll start uh, start wrapping up. Where do you see Israel uh, and and Israeli resilience? But where do you see us in ten in ten years, or 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 when you and I are old men and our children are in our our place? Are we are we doing well? Are we doing better than ever? Is the world okay? Um, have we, <laughs> have we, have we nuked ourselves? Like where, where, oh, where, where are we get away is right. Where are we going? Oh, I, I genuinely think we're going forward. Uh, I genuinely think we are. I mean, look, we're living history right now, apart from the pandemic, put that aside for a moment. Your co-host is in the United Arab Emirates. Okay. Juanced is coming live from the UAE today. And if I would have said to you six months ago, oh, you're going to be having a, you know, an interview that's going to be partially hosted by from Dubai, uh, you probably would have sounded surprised by that. So yeah, that's I'd have been pretty- like, well, where's the mushrooms you're eating? Like, uh, could I have them? <laughs> exactly. That sounds totally absurd. Exactly. So next we need to send down to Bahrain and then the Sudan. And who knows? Oman, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, these are all realistic. So look, we're on a positive trajectory. The state of Israel is a miracle without a doubt. 
Uh, and we're blessed to live in this age, by the way. Okay, so I would say to the listeners, you know, enough complaining about the pandemic. My God, my my son was bar mitzvah, um, and I wrote him a letter, an open letter. I published it in the Times of Israel, and and likewise when it was my daughter's bar mitzvah, and I said to them, you know, your ancestors could only have dreamed. You're the first person in our family. My daughter was the first person to have a bar bat mitzvah, you know, at the Kotel uh, since expulsion, you know, since our family was expelled and, and wandered uh, and finally made their way to, to London, you know, from east to west and now back east again. So we're home. Uh, we're in the place where I'm meant to be and our trajectory is positive. Um, we will always have challenges and we will always have struggles. Isn't that the Jewish story? But uh, we've got so much accomplishment under our belt that there's only one way to look at this as far as I'm concerned. So I'm hoping that in the years to come, in the decades to come, it will be a more peaceful region. There'll be more understanding of Israel's position, uh, its uh, achievements and its challenges. A lot of the world is having similar challenges now. Look at what's going on in France right now. Look at what's going on in terrorism around the world. And there will be more understanding to Israel's position. BDS is a losing prospect. The anti-Israel crew is a negative proposition. Uh, and, you know, so at the end of the day, people need to choose whether they want to buy a negative uh, direction or a positive one and back Israel. And I believe they'll go with Israel. Absolutely. And and, 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 and it is really incredible. I mean, just to, just to reflect on that, that like, you know, the, our co-host was was doing this from Dubai, and where are we yeah. now? And even like a couple months ago, that would have been completely absurd. So yes, I definitely agree with you. There's a very positive trajectory here for all of us, and uh, and we just have to be resilient and see it through, and and we'll get there. Um, Naomi, I have I have one final question from you that I actually received from a uh, from from a listener here. Um, they're asking sure. if you haven't been resilient and want to be more resilient. Can you teach empathy or how can you teach empathy and flexibility to an adult? Well, um, it's, uh, it's a process, you know, it's, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, that's what I've really been spending my, uh, years doing is, uh, facilitating workshops primarily for adults to learn how to discover what is resi- where they do have resilience in their own lives. And many people have, uh, most people have, like I said, most people are resilient. There are things that you, there are skills you can learn. There are tools that you can learn. This past summer, the um, OU, the Union of Orthodox Congregations, sponsored a series um uh, about they called it the resilience project and one of the courses that was given was a course that i led it was a four session course a lot of the materials are still up both on my website you can access it from my website which is naomibaum.com or from the ou website uh, a lot of materials and you can get a sense of what kinds of things you can do to uh, encourage the probably the seeds of resilience that you already have in your life that you may not be aware of, you may not putting you may not be putting the focus on at this point, um, but there's certainly things you can do as an adult. 
So there's still hope for people. If you're if you're having a hard time, and uh, and perhaps uh, you need a little bit of help, uh, stay with it. Um, you you can make it happen for yourself too. I want to thank both of you very much for for coming on for your time. Uh, thank it's you. terrific to spend honestly. It's terrific to spend time with people who are so unbelievably positive about where we where we are and where we're going, and that are able to find such beautiful moments from what are honestly true personal and national tragedies in many different regards, as well as also moments from, I mean, I'm just going to go back to the story you were sharing about the, the young climber that hiked up Mount Everest and had to make a decision of whether to continue or to save uh, somebody that he didn't know what the odds were uh, about. I mean, you know, just overcoming personal struggles of, of that nature, which are truly remarkable. Uh, there's, there's such an amount of, energy in this place uh to 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 really see that kind of uh, process through uh, how can people buy the book how can they you you mentioned before that it's just in the final stages of being published so how how can they get it is it an amazon can we get it on amazon yes you can you can get it on amazon uh wherever you are around the world uh, you can look for is resilience on amazon it's on the book depository which ships all around the world uh for free uh to the countries that uh, may not have an Amazon. Uh, and it's also available in Israel. Also, you can find out more. In, it's in Barnes & Noble, the many other stores around the world. You can have a look at isresilience.com, isresilience.com, to see all the places that you can order the book from. Is there, an, uh, uh, just a, for my own personal knowledge, is there an audiobook version or a Kindle version? There's a Kindle version out now that you can order and the audiobook will be coming soon. We're looking into translating into many different languages, lots of different requests. So yeah, it's very exciting. And if people want to follow you guys, uh, again, uh, Naomi, your website was? www.naomibaum, one word, N-A-O-M-I-B-A-U-M.com. And Michael? Yeah, so followstandwithus.com. I'm, uh, I'm Michael Dixon. That's D-I-C-K-S-O-N dot org. You can find me on Twitter at, uh, at Michael Dixon. Uh, and likewise, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. MySpace? No, not anymore. No, man. MySpace was... Do you remember Tom? Oh, no. What was Tom? Tom on MySpace. He was everybody's friend. Oh, sorry. I thought it was like another platform that I'd never heard of. <laughs> no, you you joined MySpace and everybody's best friend was Tom. You had like an immediate friend that you didn't you couldn't delete him. He was your friend for life. It was the founder of MySpace. Um, nice. No, but but again, thanks thanks very much for coming on. Uh, very much appreciated. Uh, I uh, will definitely read the book, uh, and I recommend that everybody please check it out. And, um, and yeah, thank you, ben. Thank thank you. you and Dan for nuanced. It's, it's much needed. Uh, you know, you, we need these spaces where we can talk about so many different topics and that in such nuance as well. Uh, so thank you for creating it. It's been great. And I've been enjoying all the other shows. Uh, take care. Take, take care of yourselves you for, safe for, as they say now. And uh, I hope that I hope next time that uh, we'll be able to get together in person and not, uh, and not like this remotely. Yeah. We, we really do like to host people in, in the studio. Right. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Fetherman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts.
more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.